can I ask you first maybe to introduce yourself? I think members who are longtime listeners of this channel who follow the syllabus will be familiar with your work, but casual listeners of the podcast, this may be their first introduction to you. So my name's uh, Nick Cernick. I'm a lecturer in digital economy at King's College London. I've written a book called Inventing the Future with Alex Williams, uh, which is a book basically looking at how we can use technology to try and build a socialist future, um, particularly focused on the end of work and the, the sort of liberation of free time. Uh, and then I've also written a book called Platform Capitalism, which is about big tech companies, what they are, and how they're situated within a global history of capitalism. I'll give you a little bit of background for my project here, because we're doing something kind of unusual. I used to be a professor at the School of Visual Arts at uh, RISD. During that time, I was also writing about young people being politicized and radicalized on social media. I feel like this is maybe part of the origin story of this project. Looking back, there is now a phenomena which we call ideologies, ideologies, which are essentially niche over-hyphenated political ideologies that are made up by teenagers producing memes online. So you get extraordinarily silly and fun, entertaining things like state capitalist, juche, anarcho-libertarianism, and whatever. In the very beginning, there was something called fully automated luxury communism. This predates a lot of those subcultures, actually. Some of the people who now participate in it, who are ages, say, 14, 15, 16, are not aware of those origins fully automated luxury gay space communism. I might be missing a few adjectives at a certain point. Um, before we dive into the, the really serious stuff, I wonder if you could tell us about the social media response to when that first book came out, the viral responses to that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, um, the, the origins of the book are, heavy, are heavily implicated in social media. So Alex and I, um, actually, you know, I see capitalist realism in, in your backdrop there, in your background. Alex, Mark, and myself used to spend long nights chatting, drinking and chatting. And, you know, one of the big issues, this was this is the time of Occupy, it was the time of the, you know, the 2008 crisis, and it was the time of austerity, it was the time of rioting in London. And the question was, well, what is, what is the positive vision that's being offered in all of these things? And we would always discuss this, you know, what is actually being put on offer, rather than just saying inequality is bad, Police oppression is bad. You know, what, what else is there to, that we can actually put forth? So we got to working on, Alex and I, working on inventing the future. I think we probably started in 2010 or 2011. And at one point, I forget exactly the date. It may have been 2013. We got asked to write a sort of a publication for this little art project. And it was going to be like, you know, 100 copies run. It was going to be a very small thing. Um, but we decided that what we would do is basically turn all of our ideas for this book that wasn't finished, we'd put it into a condensed polemical manifesto form. Um, and this became what's now known as the Accelerationist Manifesto, which we called hashtag Accelerate. So that sort of social media aspect was already built into you know, the way we were sort of thinking about this stuff and the way we were trying to play with uh, sort of cultural hegemonies at the moment. So that, that manifesto took off to our great surprise. We had no expectations about it. Uh, I can distinctly remember waking up one morning and suddenly having about 50 friend requests on Facebook, back when people still used Facebook. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, the good old days. And yeah, it was just, you know, it was a complete surprise to me, um, but it really seemed to touch a nerve for a variety of reasons. I think, 
people saw a lot in it that they liked and people also saw a lot in it that they really didn't like. And I think that's sort of a, a hallmark of a good manifesto, I think, is, um, you know, it's not trying to appeal to everyone. So anyways, the, um, the manifesto took off. It got translated all over the place and it was you know, spread all through, through the online world. And then, of course, the book Inventing the Future was eventually rolled out. I would say in many ways that initial response to the manifesto, the, the, the visceral response, both positive and negative, really did feedback on how the book ended up. Um, and I think the book is a more serious approach than what it was initially going to be, is a more, I don't want to say moderated approach, because there is still some like, quite strong claims in it. There's still some polemical aspects. But it was a much more considered argument than what we had initially planned. So I think you know that sort of initial feedback of hashtag accelerate reflected back onto inventing the future um, in quite significant ways. And around the same time, you know, the sort of London group of leftists, Aaron Bastani was, you know, someone that we knew through all these different groups and we chatted with him before. And he coined this term, fully automated luxury communism. In, in many ways, it was a sort of influenced by Accelerate, influenced by the same sort of ideas, technologically advanced socialist world that wasn't afraid of sort of taking what capitalism had built and turning it towards, you know, completely alternative ends. So yeah, fully, a fully automated luxury communism, I think, became, started to circulate as part of that. And in many ways, because it included the word communism in it, it ended up having a bit more political valence um, that accelerated. I think accelerate very quickly deteriorated into an open question about what is being accelerated. And sure. this is open to so many different interpretations. It continues, from what I can gather on social media, it continues to be debated today. And precisely as you say, all these sort of micro subcultures of hyphenated, like, um, you know, goth monarch monarchists or something like that. Um, <laughs> literally, you know, I think yes. That, yeah, yeah, literally. Um, <laughs> I think very much Accelerate has been, um, because of the empty nature of that signifier and what is being accelerated, it's been open to being appropriated by so many different subcultures as well, which has allowed it to continue on in, in a multitude of different ways. And I think there's been plenty of sort of fascinating mutations of the term and the idea, um, along with you know many sort of terrifying mutations as well. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I think of um, this is maybe an example of how memes and theory have this dialogue between each other, because there's this compression of the idea of what is what is transmittable between person to person to have a kind of scalable political imaginary. So those memes are actually very important. But the memes in the process of compression, they do lose a lot. So uh, this is this is essentially the balance of politics, which is how to harness the political imaginary, make it transmittable person to person, but also not lose the most important parts of your theory. And as the internet does to theory, as we've learned in the last few years, uh, it can really, really mangle it pretty severely sometimes, um, which produces fascinating new strains of stuff, but uh, a lot of them nonsensical, to put it generously. I, I was, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, though, I think it is, it is a, you know, memes sort of highlight that, that condensation of ideas and then the, the sort of creative aspects that can stem from that condensation. The, you know, we might call it sort of a low resolution version of the original ideas. But actually, if you look at like the history of philosophy or political thinking, in many cases, you know, the most original thinkers are people who mutated what somebody else said. And they took that sort of mutation as like the jumping off point for their own project. 
So I think, you know, memes have also done that in their own way, and they have been a jumping off point for a, a lot of creative, interesting ideas as well. In the first chapter of Platform Capitalism, you frame the last few decades as the long downturn. And this includes the 70s slump, stagflation, the dot-com boom and bust of the 1990s, 2008 as well. And I wonder if now, especially post-pandemic, do you feel like we're in a new period of this, that the lockdown is chapter four of the long downturn? It's still a bit open in terms of what's going to emerge from the pandemic, if, if we ever emerge from the pandemic properly. You know, it very well could become endemic and just continue on in some form or another for a while. I think what's interesting is that if this had happened in 2008 or earlier, you know, the sort of the period where it was supposed to be the end of history, capitalism had won, there was no alternative, free market ideology ran everywhere. I think the response to COVID would have been very different than what we saw in 2020-2021. You know, the sort of strong state intervention, and not just to support banks and large capitalist institutions, but also um, to support workers in many ways. Here in the UK, Boris Johnson going and spending money to, you know, have workers not have to go into work. I think there's been a significant shift from that sort of austerity period of the 2010s and the neoliberal period of the 90s and, and 2000s. So there is this aspect where the state is intervening in a way that hasn't for quite a while. That could offer some sort of short-term reprieve from the long downturn, I think. You know, there is, I think, a strong argument to be made that state state intervention done in the proper way can actually you know, jumpstart a capitalist economy in ways that it hasn't for a very long time. And if you look at that sort of period after World War II up to about the 1970s, the so-called golden age of capitalism, um, again, that was a period where states were heavily intervening uh, within, within the economies, industrial policies everywhere, national control over key industries. So all of that, I think, you know, uh, was a period where states were supporting the economy and you had decent economic growth. That could be happening now. I'm somewhat skeptical that it's going to continue for long. I think if you sort of look internally within, to give the examples I know best, the UK economy and the, and the US economy, if you look internally within the class fractions of like the Tory party here in the UK or the class fractions of the Democratic Party, let alone the Republican Party in the US, I think it's not clear that the sort of Keynesian stimulus investment group is necessarily going to continue winning the arguments in the coming years, in which case the long downturn, I think, will continue apace. Um, you know, I see no reason why the fundamental drivers of it are going to be changing, which, you know, nowadays has to do with pro uh, productivity growth largely, the lack of productivity growth, the fact that, you know, we may have all these new handheld devices in our, in our pockets, but actually they're not improving the economy in any measurable way. So I think, you know, the, the long downturn, if I had to guess, I think is likely to continue. But COVID has sort of, you know, opened a few doors that weren't there a while ago. Encapsulated in Boris Johnson's statement that there is such a thing as society. <laughs> I remember that clip, uh, what is it, a year ago or so circulating quite a bit. We've been focusing on neoliberalism, looking at David Harvey's text from 2007. My general feeling is that we are somewhat on the other side of this, where these things are ripe to be reevaluated, 
potentially in the future, there is a consensus that the hand of the state and intervention and shaping markets, de-risking innovation, these types of things will be reconsidered. But there is also a necessary political battle that has to be won. So it's not just going to happen on its own. I mean, I think I think as well to bring it back to platform capitalism, because the capitalist class is not unified. There are different fractions of the right. capitalist class. And what's interesting when you look at uh, the New Deal period in, in America, for instance, you know, this this massive influx of new policies to ostensibly support workers and support the economy. That was because a particular class fraction actually needed workers to be healthy and needed workers to be able to do their job. What I think you see happening now, arguably, and this is where platform capitalism comes in, is the platform capitalists are quite in favor of that exact sort of thing. They want highly educated workers. They want healthy workers. They want, you know, open immigration. They want, you know, a particular series of things that align with leftist ideas as well, but they don't want it for leftist ends. They want it so that they have this big malleable workforce that they can use to then dominate the rest of the world. In addition to that, and I don't know if we'll talk about this later or not, but there's the geopolitical aspect, which I think is really interesting for platform capitalism. At the moment, the US and China facing off, trying to carve up the rest of the world according to their tech monopolies, and Europe sort of looking on being like, we want a piece of the global platform pie as well. And what this is leading to is massive state intervention in industrial policy everywhere, particularly in light of the global supply chain crisis that we see right now, semiconductors, you know, trying to find a PlayStation 5, nearly impossible right now because of um, these, these, these supply chain crises. But that means the countries are now trying to, you know, take what was once done in Taiwan, now bring it back into domestic control industrial policies. So there is, I think, in terms of the platform economy, there is a real push towards these more sort of Keynesian approaches, which again, we're trying to figure out what's going on at the upper echelons of power. I think that's important to recognize. Uh, See, that's, I was going to bring it up later, but I think it's so multifaceted, you kind of can't stay in just one lane to talk about it. Okay, so yeah, there's a there's the economic question, there's the political question, there's also superpower competition. And let's say there's a class fracture within American capitalists, right? Like what made neoliberalism so successful is that there was class solidarity among capitalists. But now there are real fractures, different people need let's say they want to reshore industry, some want to offshore it, different interests causing these fractures. Alongside competition with China, there's going to be a necessary belt tightening among some bloated sectors of the American capitalist class. Say, for example, we spend twice uh, per person that any other developed country spends on healthcare. You know, maybe Bob, who owns all of the healthcare industry in the US, could stand with a little bit of belt tightening because that's going to benefit all of the other capitalists so that we can maintain competition with China. So there's various competing forces and Politics, economy, superpower competition, all of these things drive a reintroduction of the state into uh, politics, shaping markets, uh, playing a larger hand in society. I feel like I I don't want to lose track of this question as we move forward. We passed a critical threshold. It was about five years ago. You gave a talk at Ars Industrialists. And you said something, I'm paraphrasing here, that within five years, these platform services, meaning in that case, Uber and Airbnb, will have to transition to luxury services. And here we are, and they've just pretty much made that transition. Do you feel like that description of the gig economy is in a different category than platform capitalism in general? Or is that a broader indication for a trend that's about to be rolled out across all of them? You know, part of the reason I wrote platform capitalism was 
simply because I was I was reading about platforms and the digital economy at the time and couldn't make heads or tails of what platforms were supposed to be, um, just because it seems like at the time so many people had so many different concepts and definitions and there wasn't really any clarity. Uber would be called a platform, but Google was a platform, but clearly they're very different. So I was trying to, the book was very much an attempt to clarify for myself. It's one of my favorite Zizek quotes. Um, he's asked about his writing process and he says, well, the idiot that he writes for is himself. Um, and I sort of feel like <laughs> that's my writing process as well. Platform capitalism was, yeah, very much an attempt to try and come to terms with what platforms are, but then the distinctions between them. And I think that's really important over the last five years. Because you do have things like Uber and Airbnb and what I call lean platforms in the book. And they're they're continuing to sort of do their thing. But as you say, they're, they can no longer supplement the costs the way that they once did. Increasingly, particularly in Europe, but I think also increasingly in the US, as we'll see over the coming years, the legal loopholes, which allowed them to underpay their workers, are disappearing very, very quickly, which means higher costs again for them and higher costs for consumers. You know, it's higher cost, but it's really just a true reflection of what's actually going on. So there's they're sort of you know progressing along these lines, but they continue to be relatively minor in sort of the grand scheme of things. Now Uber is a very big business. Airbnb is a very big business. They're worth billions and billions. But then you have companies like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Alibaba, Tencent. All of them are on a completely different level from any other company. Um, you might want to include Apple in there as well, but I'm not really sure that Apple, for a variety of reasons, I, I'm not sure we should include them. But so I think over the ensuing five years, what we've seen is some of those companies continuing along, doing their thing in their particular narrow industry, but the other ones, particularly with the pandemic, just growing and expanding everywhere. The amount of companies that these these other companies are gobbling up is is immense. The industries and the sectors of the economy that their tendrils are going into is spreading all the time. And, you know, you, you mentioned healthcare and the exorbitant costs in America. Well, Amazon and Google are looking at that and thinking this is, you know, a trillion dollar pie that we could carve up and take a big chunk of. This is what these companies are doing. And I think um, the pandemic has only accelerated all of that because, you know, we've become so dependent on virtual networks for communication, for the economy, for society in general. Our, our dependency on these sort of platforms has grown significantly. If I was to write platform capitalism today, I'd probably care less about Uber and Airbnb. It was you know this moment in 2015 era where it was like the sharing economy, and that was the big buzz term. And so that was, that was included in the book because everybody was talking about the sharing economy. But really, platform capitalism today is maybe six companies globally that are really crucially important. A platform is a very abstract thing to try and define. When you talk about the sharing economy, Uber, Airbnb, etc., uh, it makes it very graspable. People can kind of understand this thing quite easily. But I think there was also an expectation at the time that those that kind of economic arrangement, for lack of a better term, was more scalable than it actually was. There's an important study from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that comes out 2018. There's an expected 10% growth in the gig economy. And in fact, it shrinks by 3%. It turned out that people quit driving for Uber and went back working for Walmart. And so when we talk about platform capitalism today, we're really talking about Google and Facebook and these massive, massive entities. I feel that 
platforms are as difficult to describe as neoliberalism uh, insofar as like software can be ideological. Google and Facebook may be neoliberalism instantiated in code in the way that people compare Bitcoin to being anarcho-capitalism or WeChat as state capitalism. Yeah, but looking at, say, for example, Harvey's definition of neoliberalism, that these are more or less invisible institutions, massive, but receding into the background, not immediately visible. They attempt to move human interaction, all social interaction into the domain of the market. That sounds diagrammatically very similar to a platform to me. That sounds like Google and it sounds like Facebook. What's interesting in part about platforms, and this goes back to your earlier point as well about potential planning possibilities, is that is that in many ways, you know, neoliberalism is about building markets. This is what I take it to be. Neoliberalism is fundamentally about building markets in every possible area which is different from classical neoliberalism, this is why it's neoliberalism, is that it doesn't just say that the state steps back and the markets suddenly emerge. Instead, it says, well, actually, markets are their institutions, their sets of rules and, and laws, and they have to be built. They have to be built by the state. You look at carbon markets are a fantastic example. You know, there's no natural market for carbon. Instead, you have exhaustive processes to build a market in that area. That's neoliberalism. It's to say we're going to use the state not to wither it away, but actually to use it to build markets and support markets. What's interesting then about platform capitalism is that in many ways, you know, Amazon and Uber and Google and Facebook, they are the market. You know, they're not not building the market in the same sense, but they they simply are the market in in a rather unique way. And this is where, again, the planning stuff sort of comes from, because, you know, rather than have Bezos and his team of capitalist lackeys decide to to run that market the way they want, why couldn't we run it democratically? Why couldn't we take some of these basic principles and think about how to run them in a way which was democratic, which was socialist, which was respectful of the necessary labor required to run these things? So I think, you know, there is there is a difference for me, between neoliberalism and platform capitalism. I think there's, it's not always sort of obvious, but I think there is a sort of conceptual hinge there, even if it's not necessarily all that different in practice yet. Talking about neoliberalism, it seems at this point, at this stage of historical development, very difficult to revert to the capitalism of the 1970s. Post-war embedded liberalism to return to social democracy. Do you still feel that way? If we are crossing this threshold where states are beginning to look back at, say, Keynesian policy at the least, but also a more firm present hand in shaping markets, is there maybe a synthesis between these two ideas now or, or a new opportunity that's opened up? I mean, I'm, I'm still quite skeptical. I think the post-war moment, uh, that sort of social democratic moment was historically unique and the the conditions which enabled it are not something we should ever want you know it was the great depression and the the massive destruction of world war ii in particular Um, you know you've got europe reduced to rubble and under those conditions it's fairly easy to get german manufacturing going for instance when german manufacturing has to rebuild everything and likewise you know you've got uh, a situation where the massive cultural imposition and the state-driven drive as well to keep women in the household and put men into factories. Um, that, that gender divide is absolutely crucial to the social democratic moment as well. It's easy to give everybody a job when half the population is working from home um, or is, you know, not even, well, yeah, working from home in unpaid ways. 
all of these things are historically unique. And then also goes back to that, that fundamental issue of productivity. I follow the economist Robert Gordon in this when he talks about why do we not have productivity growth right now? His sort of argument, his fundamental argument is that, well, it's the wrong question about why we don't have productivity growth now. The right question is why did we have productivity growth from the 1920s to the 1970s? And his argument is that there was a series of technologies developed in the decades prior to that, which were one-off periods, telegram, electricity, the railroad, steam engines, things like this. Things which made a huge one-off impact on the economy, which improved things just so immensely, however you measure it, whether it be GDP or living standards or whatever. But that one-off period can't occur again, or at least, you know, speculatively, maybe we could imagine something like it happening, but you know, none of the technologies we've ever invented since have come anywhere near that surge of technologies. You know, we like to think that we live in a period of rapid change and all this technological transformation, but going from like riding horses to riding trains is a, a, a crazy <laughs> Yes. Um, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, Gordon is really good in his book, um, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, about this. He looks at, for instance, air travel, which the time it takes to travel from one place to another hasn't decreased since about the 1950s because you start taking into account all the different uh, you know, security clearances and all these different things. And of course, we had the Concorde in like the 1970s and that got canceled. And, you know, we've actually gone backwards on some technologies. Uh, so this, this sort of period of productivity growth that occurred and allowed for uh, massive economic growth in the 1940s to the 1970s was a one-off thing, which doesn't appear likely to ever happen again. So then the question becomes, well, what do we do with that? And I think that's where fully automated electric communism comes in. Um, mm-hmm. we, can, we can talk about that at another point. Yeah, it's, it's funny because rhetorically, that's what the iPhone was supposed to be, this revolutionary technology that was going to uh, have an impact similar to the train and the telegram and, and what have you. And instead, it seems to have caused even more stagnation than there was before. Economic, but also cultural. All of these things are, of course, intertwined. Okay, well, let me, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this as a question. There's a thesis that is floating on maybe the populist left and the populist right, that uh, especially after the pandemic, that there may be some necessary reshoring of key industries, and that this would reverse one part of the trend of globalization. So I wonder if, and say, the, say for example, compounded with the unaffordable childcare costs in the US, uh, where record numbers of people are quitting their jobs, because they simply, it's cheaper to stay home and care for your kids than it is to pay to send them to some private school. We may be on the threshold of reinventing some of those conditions that allowed for the capitalism of the 1970s, in a, in a maybe weird, contorted, undesirable way. Can I ask you about reindustrialization? Does that thesis sit comfortably with you? Do you think it is, one, possible? Do you think it is, two, necessary? Is that a populist pipe dream that is not going to be actualized? I do think it's entirely possible. From what I've seen of the data so far, it hasn't happened yet. Um, So global trade is still sort of clipping along at the same level it has been. It's not seeing the sort of surge in growth it's on the 90s and 2000s, but it's, it's continued clipping along at a decent pace. So it hasn't necessarily decreased. Uh, reshoring hasn't necessarily happened yet, but there's clearly a lot of political interest in it and, and economic interest in it. You know, part of the challenge is that in many cases, you know, you can't just build a factory somewhere, suddenly reorganize an entire supply chain around it. You know, the supply chain is connected in so many different ways. And actually, if you look at the academic study of this stuff, 
it was it was called supply chains for a long time, you know, and the chain has this sort of image of being a linear process of step by step by step. Nowadays, academics will talk about global value networks. And networks, I think, gets to this point that actually it's not linear in any easy way, that, you know, parts are being sent all over the place and then they're being recombined into various ways. And then those are going off into other places to be combined with other, you know, sort of meta parts. And eventually you have this finished product. But it's extremely complex and you have to start thinking about, well, how much does a shipping container cost at the present moment? Um, You know, how does that factor into your economic decisions about where you're going to place a, a factory or anything like that? On top of that, the most sort of, I think, strategically interesting industries like semiconductors, they don't get built overnight. You know, building a a fabrication place to to build these things is incredibly expensive. We're talking billions and they take years and years to build. So, you know, we look right now and we say, okay, we've got not enough semiconductors. So we're going to build semiconductor factories. And suddenly five years down the road, we've got all these semiconductor factories that are, you know, they don't have the demand and suddenly we've got an oversupply of semiconductors. So you've got that sort of oscillation in that time lag between actually what do you want to do and then actually building it and then having the impacts of it. So I think, you know, reshoring is very, very complicated. The other issue is that there has been reshoring occurring over the past 10, 15 years. The garment industry is a really interesting one. So, you know, garments were outsourced to places like Bangladesh and China and elsewhere because labor was so extremely cheap there. It's been brought back in certain places, particularly with the rise of things like fast fashion. You've got the garment industry arising in the UK and in the US, but it's coming back in a form which is mostly automated. This is, you know, the owners of capital able to make a nice tidy profit off of it, but they're not bringing jobs with them. Um, So, you know, the sort of manufacturing jobs that were lost in the 60s and 70s, later on, those aren't going to come back because what's coming back is in in an automated form. Now, that's not to say I think it's all a bad idea. I think there are obviously these complications, but I think there's also good socialist reasons to, you know, want to push for reshoring. And once you get rid of any sort of nationalist discourse around justifying the reshoring, But we can also think about, well, long supply chains are generally, not always, but generally bad for the environment. So actually shortening up supply chains is probably a good thing. The other thing is that the main reason why supply chains became global was because labor was cheaper elsewhere in the world. In an ideal world where, let's say, the living wage was the same everywhere, or, you know, people didn't have to work for a living, that'd be even more ideal. Um, But in a case where there wasn't the sort of wage differentials between different countries, In that case, there would be no economic reason to have these long supply chains either. They only exist to take advantage of wage differentials around the world. So I think for socialist reasons, we can also be arguing for, let's say, a more rational organization of supply chains. I don't think we can get rid of them, not if we want to maintain any semblance of modern life whatsoever. And, you know, there are there are efficiencies that I think we would want to keep regardless of what society we live under. But there are much more socialist ways of organizing these things. And I think reshoring would probably be part of that in many ways. One of the inflection points that we've seen in the last uh, two years of the pandemic relates to something you called folk politics. A lot of people discovered that there was really no level of mutual aid that could outcompete or fill the void left by a supply chain that disappeared overnight. And that some of these solutions are going to have to be rather comprehensive in their scope, in their planning, 
And this, I think, relates to a, a larger level of state organization and, and a general turn in left-wing politics away from the folk political, as you describe it. I'm wondering if you sense a similar thing. Do you think that left-wing politics has gotten more or less folk political in the last few years? Yeah, definitely less folk political. By folk politics, we, at the most abstract level, understood it as a, a sort of politics of immediacy. It was a politics which was focused on changing things at a local level. Uh, it was focused on temporally limited interventions, the, the momentary uprising of an Occupy movement and these sorts of things, um, which aren't, you know, Occupy Wall Street was never meant to be a permanent fixture. It was meant to be a temporary thing drawing attention to issues of inequality and ostensibly creating a, a, a community that could go and build something different. But yeah, so folk politics is all about this immediacy. And I think, you know, for us, the, the real issue, and this is, this is again, it was, it was Alex and Mark and I um, who were talking about this a lot. It was basically just a question of why did, why did Occupy Wall Street fail so, so badly? You know, despite the, the greatest crisis in capitalism since the Great Depression, despite millions of people coming out, you know, why, why did the left make so, have so little impact? So yeah, folk politics was sort of an answer to that. It was to say that what the dominant ideas of doing politics at the time primarily based around horizontalism, just weren't going to be able to change these, these abstract and global structures. They were going to inevitably sort of be insufficient. Uh, necessary, which is a, a point that I think a lot of people lose in our critique of, of politics, they are necessary in many ways, but they're insufficient. So I think over the past decade, actually, it's not just the last few years, but the past decade, you have seen a, a move away from horizontalism. Most obviously, you've got Podemos, you've got Syriza, you've got Corbyn and the Labour Party, uh, and you've got Sanders and the Democratic Party. There is this turn towards institutional, more vertical infrastructures. That is a clear change from the 2000s. But of course, what people are running into now is that these institutions are designed to uh, reject any sort of radical change. So, you know, we, we've run into the limits of them in many, many cases. I think people are now, at least in my experience, you know, the group of people that I'm close with politically and have gone through, you know, the Iraq war movement, the, the Occupy movement, a sort of turn towards parties over the 2010s. They're now much more, let's say, pluralistic about what we do. It's a matter of sort of like making interventions where it's possible. And that could be, you know, big interventions in terms of a political party. But it also can be minor things, you know, building a tenants unit in your community and that sort of thing. And that, that sort of pluralism is, I think, probably, from what I can gather, it's, it's fairly common nowadays. I think fewer people are like devoted to a particular political party. Of course, those people still exist, but I think as a proportion, there are fewer people. And I, I, I know hardly anybody who's sort of wedded to like a horizontalist approach anymore. So, you know, there is a lot of different actions and just trying to, you know, find out what works in any particular moment. I will say as well, Rodrigo Nunes is, I think, the best theorist of this stuff as well. So he's, he's written a book uh, that came out recently, but basically thinking about, you know, beyond the sort of horizontal versus hierarchical divide, you know, how do we think about organizations in a way which is much more interesting and, and hybrid and reflective of what people are actually doing in practice? One of my favorite points about his work is, um, his argument against, in the 2000s, a very common argument that we want no leaders. And actually what we don't want is 
the absence of leaders because then nothing happens, but we also don't want a single leader. What we really want is the possibility for multiple different groups and people and individuals and organizations to take up leadership rules when it's possible. You know, I think he calls it at one point a sort of mobile vanguardism, uh, which I think is a really interesting point that there's not one designated vanguard to lead the revolution, but actually at particular points in time and under particular historical conjunctures, different groups and different organizations and different individuals even can become uh, a vanguard and lead a movement. And I think that's probably you know, the best we can do at the moment. It feels like forever ago. These are now very familiar conversations to us, but I think there are probably young people in the audience that this is maybe their first time hearing it. During the era of Occupy Wall Street, these were very fiercely contested ideas. And, and in some factions of left-wing thought, they still are contested. But there was a point where a certain type of left-wing, really radical horizontality seemed to, inadvertently, unbeknownst to a lot of the participants, toe the line for the interests of the platforms, in that if you could dismantle a left-wing movement and atomize everyone into individual participants on Twitter, for example, that this was, in some, in my opinion, goofy uh, factions of left-wing thought, that this was actually more desirable than having a hierarchical or organized party or something like this. That no longer seems to be the case. And what I tell participants in the community and uh, students or people who read the syllabus is that if you're spending a lot of time in the newsfeed and you're scrolling Twitter and you're kind of hanging on every update for a story that's in the news cycle, you are really missing the picture. And what you should have is like a collection of maybe six really good books that tell you the story of the past 40 years. And so you understand what neoliberalism is, you understand what platform capitalism is, and then you can kind of just check out of a lot of the newsfeed because it's really just wasting your time. You're just mm -hmm. on a treadmill and you're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and what you need is a good analysis from the beginning. And that sets you in the right direction. And then you're equipped to understand the things that come your way. And you can kind of check out of a lot of the newsfeed that just soaks up your time, but doesn't teach you very much. I'm going to shift gears for a second here. This is a rather abstract question, so bear with me for a second here. You mention a pile of money that tech companies are sitting on in Dublin. Uh, some estimates 1.1, 1.3 trillion. This is years ago now, so I imagine it is <laughs> comprehensively much larger at this point. One of the things that I'm very curious about, the robber barons of the past of an earlier era of American history, and, and definitely of European history as well, people who sat on that amount of capital would find something to do with it, where they would make a beautiful, expansive public library that was open to everyone, or they'd found an art museum, or, or something like this that just broadly enriched the public interest. But instead, there's this, what I would call the platform capitalist class, seems to be sitting on an extraordinary amount of money without any desire to give back. And I have my own ideas about why that is, I'm curious if you have any insight, and then maybe I'll offer my thesis. I don't want to color your interpretation to see if you have a different opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, so the, 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 the cash glut, as it's known, um, is sort of a confluence of a number of different things. Primarily, the fact that these companies are so based upon uh, intellectual property for a lot of their potential revenues. An intellectual property, because it's immaterial, you can just locate it wherever you want. And these companies basically just write a piece of paper saying, oh, well, we've moved it to uh, you know, this tax haven. So then the, the profits that get you know, accumulated on these particular intellectual properties end up getting charged at very low rates. Now, in the US, it was also partly the fact that what's known as the repatriation of profits. So taking profits earned abroad and bringing them back to America, the tax on that was, I think it was 30 or 35%. It was very, very high. 
So these companies are basically like, well, we're not going to bring it back to you know America because we're going to have to give away a good chunk of it. So it was kept abroad in these tax havens, and you know it's interesting as well what different companies do with it because Apple basically uses a lot of it to give away dividends. You know they give their stockholders get a nice payment all the time. They're increasingly buying back stock as well, which means that as the supply of stock goes down, stock prices go up. Looks good on the bottom line. Looks good for anybody who's still holding stock because your prices are going up. But that's you know that's what they were using uh, a lot of their financial heft for. Whereas a company like Amazon is the, sort of the exact opposite. And Amazon I find you know beautiful in a horrifying way because they are like the arch capitalist. I think they are the company which says no, we're not going to take any profits and give it to stockholders. We're going to reinvest it so we can grow bigger and more powerful. Um, and that's what terrifies me about Amazon is that they know exactly what they're doing, whereas Apple's just like we don't know what to do with our money. We have too much. Yeah, and then it gets it gets to as you say the issue. You know, well, why aren't they doing the sort of public outreach, charitable things? I mean, partly it has to do with the financial structure of these companies. So particularly like Facebook is a good example where Zuckerberg has set it up in such a way that he continues to control it, and you know it's, it's dominated by him. He does then go and spend money on charities and you know, tries to make a good name for himself. And I have this, I have this inkling that he really does think he's doing the world a favor with like metaverse and stuff like that. I think he really thinks that like yes. this is yeah. his investment in improving the world. That's that's the contemporary expression of that classic Robert Barron buying libraries is is Zuckerberg creating a virtual library on metaverse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say as well, you got you got Bezos and stuff like that. Um, reportedly, Amazon Prime is uh, a money money loser for them, and one of the key reasons why Bezos continues to spend money on Amazon Prime is reportedly because he wants to get close to Hollywood and you know be next to the the fancy actresses and everything like that. You know, it's just a, a way for him to pick wow. up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, guess, this oh, is an oh, ill society. <laughs> it, it totally is. One other thing, though, which is interesting, is you've also got the space race from a lot of these wealthy people as well. So Branson, Bezos, and uh, uh, Elon Musk, that fucker. Um, yeah, so you've got you've got these three basically using their private wealth, not to you know, again, not to buy libraries, but to build giant space penises and go into low Earth orbit. The space stuff is. Um... Part of their wager is that uh, carbon's going to burn up the planet in the imminent future. And so rather than giving back and making a library or an art museum, um, I'm building the necessary infrastructure to preserve humanity or something like that, which is, um, I don't know, maybe admirable in a very limited sense, but I would personally much rather save the planet and survive. Uh, <laughs> that's just me. Um, but I wonder, there's Tell me if I'm, I'm missing the mark here. I feel like there's also an ideological component where specifically platforms like YouTube and platforms like Facebook, they were creating an outlet that gave everyone a voice. And so for them, there would be a conflict of actually making an art museum that elevated one level of cultural production or one object above all others, because they were creating the horizontal platforms that allowed everyone to be an artist. So it was actually antithetical to their process of how they understood and wanted to shape society to um, allow for editors and curators and et cetera, because what they were trying to do was disintermediate and break up those old legacy media institutions. 
And now we kind of see they're having to eat their words to a certain degree because once the gatekeepers were eliminated from these platforms and eliminated from media, it's been really disastrous for the discourse. Like it has gotten, I think, measurably by all indications uh, worse Uh, and certainly to the detriment of a lot of these platforms. That is maybe a more narrow analysis that applies specifically to the art world, but in the broad analysis of just global capitalism more generally, uh, declining rates of profit, no states to de-risk innovation, and then you end up with tech money that should be used in venture capital in some way, but they just can't find anything profitable enough to put it in. And uh, mm-hmm. it just sits in Dublin and it doesn't move, which is mm-hmm. which is dangerous because capital needs to circulate. Otherwise, you get a crisis. And yeah, but maybe maybe in the near future, if things go our way a little bit, then uh, states can facilitate this capital moving again. And you can get um, maybe a little bit more intervention and, and shaping of markets. You recently had a piece in Eflux uh, written in collaboration with Helen Hester titled Shelter Against Communism. And this is about the role of home ownership, specifically in the suburbs, in propagating capitalist ideology, capitalist individualism. You also have a book coming out this year. I wonder if you would tell us maybe a bit about the book and how that recent essay relates to the topics and the themes you're looking at now. Helen and I are writing a book called After Work, The Fight for Free Time. We're hoping to finish it up in the next month or two. We're we're very nearly done. But basically, the, the core sort of jumping off point for the book is to say, well, We've got all this sort of thinking about post-work recently over the past five, 10 years. You know, lots of people thinking about, well, how do we end work? You know, what are the ways to get there? Um, what can we do afterwards? But then you've also got a sort of curious absence in a lot of that discussion, which is the work that's done in the home. You know, we talk about, let's automate factories, let's automate office work, let's automate warehouses. But we don't talk about domestic work in the home. Uh, and we also don't talk about you know, hospitals or nurseries or uh, nursing homes or anything like that. The work of social reproduction, you know, the work that goes into caring for people, supporting people daily, but also reproducing you know, the species over generations, all of the work that goes into that sort of social reproduction has largely been missed by post-work. And when you do find people talking about it, is mostly to say that actually post-work can't really apply to social reproduction. So, you know, the classic idea of post-work, simplest version is to say, well, we have this work which needs to be done. Let's automate it with a robot and then we can have free time. With social reproduction, you can't really do that, either technically, economically, or morally in many cases. You You can't automate childcare in the same way. You can't automate elder care in the same way. We can't automate gestational labors in the same sort of way. And so it seems like, you know, this this huge amount of work, social reproduction, and this the discourse around post-work, it just seems like they can't speak to each other. Our book is basically an attempt to say that they can speak to each other, but they both have to be revised in sort of particular ways to think about it. So it goes through, you know, a history of different approaches to post-work and social reproduction, particularly focusing on four different areas. Families, so the sort of social unit which takes care of biological reproduction and daily care in general. Technologies, so various technologies which could be potentially used to um, assist with reproductive labor. Standards, so there's a really interesting story to be told about the increase in, for instance, cleaning standards over the past century, um, but also childcare standards. You know, weirdly enough, Every single statistic we have shows that we spend more time on children today than we did in the 1970s. And that was when you had a full-time housewife. So there's this weird case where standards have risen up 
Um, and you know, we're now doing more work because the standards have arisen. And then lastly, we have spaces. So the different spaces of social reproduction. And this is where the, the shelter against communism piece came from, is a sort of building off of some of the, the pieces from that chapter. But looking at the various ways in which alternatives to the individualized family home uh, have been created, but also failed. So why they didn't manage to actually reduce work, but also why that, that particular household form, again, the individualized single family home, idealized in, in suburbia, how that was imposed after World War II and why that was imposed. And I think there's a really interesting anti-communist story to be told about suburbs, which is you know, the, the, this quote from one of the biggest developers in the 1950s, who basically said, no man who owns his own home can be a communist because he has too much work to do. It's a perfect encapsulation of everything. But yeah, it, it, it's you know this really interesting point about how individualized family homes and home ownership that goes along with it were designed in such a way that they reduced people's free time so that they wouldn't become communists. Um, and then also how that gets extended internationally because the U.S. was quite forceful in pushing out a particular ideology around home ownership. Yeah, so we, we try and tell some of these stories in, in this book. And then, you know, in the concluding chapter, we try and set out, well, what can we learn from these stories uh, about how to combine post-work and social reproduction, uh, recognizing previous limitations and problems and issues? There are certain privileges in the art world that when we discuss politics broadly, we are not bound by other professional disciplines and we can be in some ways uh, untethered to the current moment. We can be very speculative. As the crisis unfortunately deepens, more and more radical solutions are required. Greater imaginaries greater scope and a more uh, more radical vision. Yeah. And so um, when I think of your work, I think of Helen's work, uh, I think of the things that have been most influential for me in the past few years. We're looking at a future where there's going to be a level of social planning and smart cities and a green TVA smart grid that will require a level of social organization that just hasn't happened in my lifetime, uh, certainly, but I don't think during the neoliberal era at all. So this level of maybe speculative utopian design is actually becoming not speculative, but very urgent and necessary. So it's an interesting, hopeful, but also terrifying time. So <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Nick, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure talking to you. Is there anything else to plug before we sign off here? Go out and build communism. Greetings, you Matrix One.